Hey guys, uh, Sean Pruitt here. I've got a lot of news to discuss regarding oil prices. I've got uh, several interviews that I'm going to be playing through. And uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Malik Steele, still sees oil at $150 a barrel. And I have his interview and I'm going to be discussing that. I also have clips from the SEO Summit. Uh, China, uh, uh, Russia, Iran, India, several major world powers in the Middle East are coming together and they are publicly admitting to the fact that they're coming against the West. And so these uh, conglomerates, these guys coming together, they will control oil. And the same thing Russia did to Europe, uh, uh, the Middle East, OPEC, uh, China, Russia, Iran, it puts them in position uh, to cut off the West from oil. And if that happens, oil prices are going to skyrocket. You really need to be paying attention. So I've got several clips uh, regarding that. Also have CNBC's full interview with uh, India's petroleum minister, and he's going to discuss uh, where their oil demand will be coming in the future. And nobody's really talking about this. I, I I was listening and I'm like, did I just hear that correctly? Their demand is going up and it's not being discussed. Okay. And so, uh, and also I've got a few other uh, interviews. One of um, uh, the transportation committee hearing uh, with Thomas Massey questioning uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg. And he asked him the question, the question, which uses more electricity, refrigerator or charging a Tesla, okay? And so I'm going to talk about some highlights, and it talks about the hypocrisy and the ridiculousness of that green agenda, okay? And so I'm Sean Pruitt, president of Kingdom Exploration. If you're interested in the oil and gas industry, oil and gas prices, or anything of that nature, uh, please subscribe to my channel. Uh, let's watch this uh, uh, video. But the reality is that we can't just rely on OPEC and Saudi to provide the marginal barrel. Because what you then have is U.S. shales slowing down, recounts are falling because of logistics, supply chain issues. It's amazing, pre and post-COVID, it's like you've dismantled it. A few things have gone rusty, you put it back together again, and it's just not as effective in terms of supply growth from shale. And then you're left with um, everybody else, so non-GCC, non-US, which is the majors, the IOCs, and they're doing everything but investing in oil. And that's particularly because of all the uncertainty, not just about the front-end volatility of the price, but social tax, windfall tax, giving cash back. So oil capex has never been as far back in the queue. So that leaves more reliance on Saudi to ultimately fill the gap. But the message, I think, around the future is that it can't be just OPEC that underwrite or fill in the deficits when needed. Um, and this is part of our super cycle thesis that in the end, we're going to see a structural deficit that can't be managed or, or met quickly enough through short cycle barrels. We still believe that demand will ultimately uh, continue to grow to 107 million barrels by 2030. And the issue is this, if that's right, and we have a shortage of all fuels, and we're back to the same issue, which is where, how do we fund, how do we meet this energy deficit in the future? It can't be coal, it can't be gas, uh, we're maxed down LNG, it's got to be through solar and wind. And then when you've gone through that, we still have a major deficit um, in oil, which basically means that we're going to see repricing of oil uh, significantly higher. And so we still stand by our upside case in 150. Uh, particularly as China comes back, I think in some ways, China has appeased uh, this 
this deficit, this crisis in Europe by virtue of having lockdowns. If you have lockdowns um, ease, China reemerges as a marginal buyer of LNG, um, then we will have deficits in Europe in energy that can't wholly be met um, through through gas unless we have gas to oil switching, which is clearly bullish demand for oil, um, particularly through next year, which is why we struggle to take numbers down on demand when all we can see is more um, more demand for, for oil, particularly as it's still the cheapest fuel relative to all other. So a couple uh, uh, things that uh, Malik uh, pointed out, he said, hey, listen, we can't we can't rely on Saudi oil. OK, we have to find something else. And that something else is U.S. Shell. Well, we've, we've already been down the road of U.S. Shell in 2012 when everybody was touting U.S. Shell. 2013, 14, all the way to 2019, we hit 13 million barrels a day. And everyone was saying we're never going to see $100 oil again. Uh, there's an oil glut and we're producing more oil than Russia, more oil than Saudi Arabia. We are the kingpins of oil when everybody was preaching that. And rejoicing and saying we're the we're we're a net exporter of oil. We're foreign oil independent. We are producing more oil than we'll we'll, we'll ever dream. When everybody was preaching that, I was sitting there saying we're going to see hundred dollar oil again. And here's why: Shell is a flash in the pan. And I was one of the few people saying that. And so here's something you have to understand: we can't rely on Shell. Shell the the decline of Shell meaning. The formation itself, if you turn on the spigot of a shell well, you drill a shell well today and it's doing 1,000 barrels a day, by the end of the year, it will be producing 400, okay? Imagine spending billions and billions of dollars on shale and seeing this massive amount of output and losing 60% of that in the first 12 months, in the next year it is declining, and the year after. I mean, these aren't Saudi oil wells, these aren't Russian oil wells they, where they could produce for 50 to 60 years. They're not. These have a sh much shorter shelf life, okay? And so we can't rely on Saudi oil. And the reason why we can't rely on Saudi oil is because although they have a longer shelf life because they have higher porosity oil formations in the Middle East, they've been producing for the last 50 to 60 years and they haven't made any uh, major improvements. And so we have a structural deficit because we're not investing in oil development. Uh, we're in, in, in the other thing that Malik pointed out is that we're expected by 2030 in eight years, that's in eight years, guys, in eight years, we're expected to have a demand of 107 to 110 million barrels a day. And when China comes out of lockdown, it's game over. And so, and, and the other thing is we got to focus on the fact that we're going from natural gas to oil conversion. That is, makes it very bullish for oil, okay? And so regarding uh, the demand for 107, 110, I've got an interview uh, by uh, CNBC's full interview with India's petroleum minister. Uh, uh, you can look that up on, the, on, the, on YouTube to be able to watch the whole thing. But he's, I'm going to, uh, he's going to be speaking to their demand. Uh, let's go ahead and listen in on that there is a shortage of uh, supply the demand is higher than the uh, supply opec has today taken a decision to uh, uh, circumscribe its uh, own production by 100000 barrels there's a talk on the price cap there are a lot of things energy today is the lifeline of economies and if a large country like india if we were to not be able to navigate through this crisis i think it would be you know for the next two decades, 25% of the global demand increase is going to come from India. And India today 
5 million barrels uh, of uh, consumption of crude oil, I see that going up to 6, 7, 9, etc. The Petroleum Minister of India just said, we're going to go from 5 million barrel a day demand to upwards of over 9 million, etc. That means we're going to potentially see India's demand double over the next decade. Why aren't we hearing that? I'll tell you why. Because the left, the media, is pushing the green agenda. And if you, if you hear the truth that their trillions of dollars that they spent on green isn't putting a dent in oil demand, it's only going to destroy their argument. The fact that oil demand is growing when we have the most green president in place, I mean, He's doing whatever he can, and I'm not saying his name because I'm tired of my uh, YouTube channel uh, getting hit because of it, but he is doing whatever he can to save face and to not talk about the numbers. The truth is, is that oil demand is growing. The truth is, is that they spent $5 trillion on green, only reducing fossil fuels by 2%. And it didn't even put a dent in oil. In fact, it's growing. That is the truth. Making it very clear, like, look, energy demand is higher than the supply. And he said that energy is the lifeline of the economy. He's telling you just how important, important oil is as where the rest of the world or the media is telling you how unimportant it is. And oh, by the way, we have a solution for it. Okay, and so this next uh, this next video that we're going to watch, it is a uh, 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 Pete Buttigieg is uh, talking to Rep uh, Rep Thomas Massey, and he asked an interesting question, and hopefully uh, you could see the hypocrisy in this green uh, energy uh, initiative. Uh, Rep Representative Massey, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Buttigieg, I've been driving an electric car for 10 years, and I've had solar panels for 15 years, and I'm really bullish on technology and the way it could help make our country energy independent or more energy independent. But I'm really alarmed at sort of the naivete of those who are promoting rapid adoption of these technologies with our existing infrastructure. President Biden signed a non-binding executive order stating that 50% of, of vehicles sold in the United States should be electric by 2030. Do you support that? Yes. And he also said that by 20, 2035 that 100% uh, of the federal fleet, federal government fleet should be electric. Do you support that? Yes. So um, which uses more electricity? We're talking about residential electricity here. A refrigerator when it's running or an electric car when it's charging in your garage? I would expect a car. Uh, would you say it uses twice as much or 25 times as much? I would think closer to 25 times as much. Yeah. It's, it's actually 50 uh, in, at the instantaneous moment, mm -hmm. but over the course of a year, if I take the numbers from the U.S. Department of Energy about the average household, how many vehicles they own and how far they drive, over the course of a year, uh, an American household would use 25 times as much electricity for their electric car as they would for their refrigerator uh, if they had 100% adoption. If, if and the average family has two vehicles, and this would be if the average family had two electric vehicles. Do you think it would strain the grid if everybody plugged in 25 refrigerators in every household? 
Well, if we didn't make any upgrades to the grid, sure. Do you, do you think by 2030, which is when Biden says 50% of uh, cars sold should be electric, do you think the grid will be capable of handling electric cars? It's going to need to be, and we're working with the Department of Energy every day. We've established a joint office of energy and transportation to map out some of the needs. Obviously, some of this gets outside of my lane, and we've been discussing with... Aptly used the word need. You could say want as well. It, there's needs and wants to make this fantasy work by 2030, but the reality is the capability is not going to be there. The average uh, household uses 17% of their electricity for air conditioning. And um, that would mean the average household uses 1,870 kilowatt hours per year for air conditioning. If that average household plugged in electric cars, do you know how much more electricity they would use in comparison to the air conditioning that air conditions their whole house? No, but again, I would emphasize it will well, let be me help less you. Let me help you overall. with that first before we go on, because the numbers are important. It would take four times as much electricity to charge the average household's cars as the average household uses on air conditioning. Do you think that could be? So if we reach the goal by 2030 that Biden has of 50% of adoption instead of 100% adoption, that means the average household would use twice as much electricity charging one of their cars as they would use for all of the air conditioning that they use for the entire year. Do you think this could contribute to rolling uh, blackouts and brownouts in areas of the country where air conditioning is basically considered essential? Not if we prepare. Look, the fact that people who have electric vehicles are going to use more electricity can't be a reason to give up. In the time that I have left, let me say, uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't prepare. I told you at the beginning of this, I'm bullish on, on this technology. But the, the numbers and the rate of adoption has been developed using political science, not engineering. They're impractical. And if we blindly follow these goals that Biden has set out, it will cause pain and suffering for the middle class. And I yield back, Mr. Chairman. That political science has been used to come up with these numbers, and it's ridiculous. I mean, he, he embarrasses him. And if he didn't embarrass him, he is believing his own lies. I mean, the the analogies he, he uses perfect. Uh, one of the things he said, the electric car uses 50 times more energy than a running refrigerator. Okay. And he said, let's, let's just extrapolate. Let's say we use half that. Okay. Uh, can the Americans can, do you think that it would, uh, the grid can handle if, if all households add 25 refrigerators to their homes? And his, and Buttigieg's response is simply, well, we got to upgrade. Well, we got to use tomorrow's uh, 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 tech for tomorrow's future and what have you. I mean, listen, the grid can't handle the electricity we're using today. Imagine adding 25 additional refrigerators to each home. That's what an electric car does. We do not have the infrastructure to charge these vehicles. Uh, uh, the average household uses 17% of electricity for air conditioning in one car. Uses four times, four times. Can you imagine if every American household owner quadrupled their air conditioning needs? The, the grid would be shut down. What, what makes you think you could uh, be prepared for this in the next 
10 to 20 years. It's Listen, guys, this is a pipe dream. It's never going to happen, okay? And so this next video, it's going to be the SEO Summit. Now, this is huge. This is big league, okay? China, Putin, Russia, Iran, all of these Middle East countries are coming together and they're publicly admitting we're coming against the Western powers. We're tired of being sanctioned. We're tired of being controlled. And they're having joint military drills between China and Russia. I could foresee them controlling oil and putting a noose around the necks of the West the same way Russia has cut off Europe from energy. I mean, you look how much of a mess they're in. If Russia can do that to all of Europe, imagine what the Middle East, if they come together, if China and Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia, imagine what they can do to the West. It's, it would cause oil prices to skyrocket. Let's listen in. All eyes are on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO. It is the world's largest regional organization covering nearly 40% of the world population. From China's Xi Jinping to Russia's Vladimir Putin, from Iran's Ibrahim Raisi to the Pak Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif, leaders are holding big bilateral, new ties are being forged. There is also a lot happening on the sidelines. Three leaders try to grab headlines with their engagements. Chinese President Xi Jinping, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi. Let's tell you what they were up to today, one by one. We begin with Xi Jinping. The Chinese president arrived in Uzbekistan last night. Yesterday, he was in neighboring Kazakhstan. He kicked off his engagements from there. And today, President Xi continued with his Central Asia outreach. The Uzbek president greeted him at a welcome ceremony. Xi Jinping also engaged with other key leaders of the region. Plus, of course, Vladimir Putin. Yes, that was the big meeting of the day. It's made headlines. The Xi-Putin bilateral on the sidelines of the SCO summit. What did the two leaders discuss? Xi Jinping stuck to his message. We told you about this last night on the show. The Chinese president wants to use the platform of the SCO to establish a new world order, a new anti-Western alliance. And for that, she says that he is willing to work with Putin. Listen in. Facing an ever-changing world era, and history, China is willing to make efforts with Russia to assume the role of great powers and play a guiding role to inject stability and positive energy into a world rocked by social turmoil. Now that was like music to the Russian president's ears. In his comments, he reaffirmed Russia's no-limits partnership with China and of course he lectured the West. Putin didn't stop there, he praised China for its position on the Ukraine invasion and gave his full-throated support to Chinese actions in Taiwan. 
We highly appreciate the balanced position of our Chinese friends in connection with the Ukrainian crisis. Attempts to create a unipolar world have recently acquired an absolutely ugly form and are completely unacceptable. For our part, we stand firm on the One China principle. We condemn the provocations of the United States and its satellites in the Taiwan Strait. It wasn't just the leaders, their militaries were also talking. China and Russia are now conducting joint military drills in the Pacific. This has significance. It's the backyard of the United States, after all. Moscow announced these drills today. The Russian Defense Ministry released these pictures. And as Putin ramped up his anti-West rhetoric at the SEO. The Russian president held other meetings too. He met with Pakistan's Prime Minister Shabaz Sharif, the Kyrgyz president Sadiq Japarov, the Iranian president Raisi, and these were all closed-door meetings. But Putin's objective behind it was clear. The Russian president is bolstering his roster of allies. He's reaffirming old ties and strengthening new relationships. Western sanctions have practically shut Russia out of key global forums. It's isolated. So the SCO becomes vital for Russia to sustain its engagement with the outside world. Iran is in a similar position. It is trying to overcome its own economic isolation. Iran holds an observer status at the SEO. Tehran is about to get an upgrade, however. Today, the Iranian leadership signed a memorandum. This paves the way for Iran's permanent membership to the SEO. Tehran has officially committed to fulfilling the SEO obligations. So how quickly can it be inducted to this summit, this organization? It could happen as soon as next year. Just like Putin, the Iranian president too didn't miss an opportunity to take on the U.S. The Americans think whichever country they impose sanctions on, it will be stopped. In my opinion, their perception is a wrong one. The relationship between countries that are sanctioned by the US, such as Iran, Russia or other countries, can overcome many problems and issues and make them stronger. Xi Jinping said a new world order, an anti-Western alliance. Russia and China and Iran, along with several other Middle East countries, hate the West, and they are going to bring their resources together and cut them off. And that's the only way to break the backs of the Western powers. Because right now, if America wants to sanction Russia or Iran or China, which they already are, they can. But there's no retort. And, and this is the big reason why Putin went into U Ukraine. He was tired of being surrounded by NATO. He was tired of the Western powers. He was tired of being sanctioned by America. He was tired of being policed in his own country and the inability to do business with other countries the way he sees fit. He's tired of being controlled. Well, Xi Jinping is tired of it as well. And the only reason why China is not taking over Taiwan is because they don't want to be sanctioned. They heavily rely upon U.S. currency, on the USD, uh, the Federal Reserve, and the relationship with America. And without American sanctions, they can be free to do whatever they want. And that's why Iran is in the position they are, they're in. They're not producing any oil for that reason. They're not able to export for that reason because the sanctions have been so impactful and powerful. But imagine 
Imagine if if Putin could get away with dropping bombs in Ukraine under the current situation. Imagine where he didn't have to worry about sanctions because these powers that be, they have their own banks. And so if, if China, if China uh, makes a deal with Russia, for instance, just between Putin and China, there's enough business there because China, in order to grow, they need energy. Well, they rely upon heavily on Putin. And Putin could get enough business from China to prosper greater than he's ever prospered before, just from that one bilateral relationship. Well, throw Iran in, throw Saudi Arabia, throw India in. India is there. In fact, they are, uh, uh, I, I believe that he, they're the head of the uh, SEO organization now. And India's demand is growing substantially. Okay, they have 40% of the world's uh, population. Okay, and that group alone could give each other enough resources and business to flourish. And so we can't just cut that off in the event that they all come together and then they sanction us by cutting us off from oil. What are we going to do? We're it would destroy our economy. We wouldn't have enough energy. We wouldn't be able to move forward. We would have no choice but to submit to whatever their demands are, okay? And so if they didn't cut us off, it would put us in a position, because the only reason why we haven't gone into Russia and started dropping bombs, because they have nuclear bombs. And so this is going to only give them even more chips to control and break out of this Western policing, this Western control, and, and, and they're coming against it, okay? And so uh, I'm, I'm going to end this video with uh, some highlights from Sri Lanka of why that country, the demise of the country, is because of green energy, the green energy push. The government came against fossil fuels, and it destroyed. It was the beginning of the end of that country, and I... I, I want you to watch this video to understand the effects of going all green and getting rid of fossil fuels. And so we need to stop this madness, and we need to develop oil and gas. All right, guys, I'm Sean Pruitt, president of Kingdom Exploration. I'm going to have this video play. If you're interested in oil and gas or if you're interested in oil and gas investing, please go on my description below. Click on the link. Fill out my form. I'd love to connect with you. Thanks. Protesters removing the police barricades and pushing the riot police back. People in Sri Lanka rioted because in one year, the country slipped into extreme poverty. A big reason is because Sri Lanka's government fell under the influence of the world's hardcore environmentalists. The green generation has risen up. We must go from harming our planet to healing it. Many governments have embraced the idea that pure nature is best. For most of our history, humans lived in harmony with nature. But we have shattered that balance creating a climate catastrophe. We need the countries to work together. Come on, Sri Lanka! That sparked these protests. They want the whole political class to leave. The protesters stormed into the president's mansion. 
The president resigned the next day. It's out of control. It's completely unnecessary. We have to get to 100% renewable energy. We see the same extremism with ideas like the Green New Deal. We have to get to 100% renewable energy. We're in the worst energy crisis in 50 years. Energy prices going from record to record. And yet here we are, governments are trying to make energy more scarce and expensive. European power plants are desperately trying to buy coal because wind energy hasn't performed. It's totally insane. There's no other word for it. This pursuit of a chemical-free world is insane. With poverty soaring, one in five Sri Lankans are going hungry. People have no gas to cook. People have no money to buy food. So this has to stop. Sri Lanka today, the world tomorrow. Let's hope the hardcore environmental left doesn't get its way.